Good morning. <laughs> well, welcome to your Supreme Court. Our first case is uh, Wing versus Goldman Sachs and Falls versus Goldman Sachs et al. And we will hear from the appellant. Good morning. May it please the court. I'm Mitch Armbruster of the Smith Anderson Law Firm, and I'm here today with my partner Jim Dorsett and even Frangello in the audience. We represent Goldman Sachs as the trustee of a trust created by Ralph Falls Jr., one of the appellants in this matter before the court. I intend to take 15 minutes for my argument, then to defer for Mr. Duncan for 10 minutes and reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Under North Carolina law and the Uniform Trust Code, which follows the common law of trusts as to the issues in this case, a trustee has a clear duty to defend claims against a trust. It may not sit back and do nothing. The Court of Appeals significantly erred in analogizing this action to a will contest and applying the law of wills. My argument will focus on two points. One, that a trustee does indeed have a duty to defend claims against a trust or terms of a trust if it reasonably believes the claims to be without foundation. The trial court properly confirmed that duty in its pay order. Second, I will argue that the Court of Appeals erred in holding that the trustee breached its duty of neutrality in following the trial court's pay order. The trustee was bound to file the trial court's pay order and cannot be held to have breached any duty for doing so. Institutional trustees, such as Goldman Sachs and any trustee, must rely on settled law and the efficient and proper administration of trusts and needs to be able to rely on court orders directing them as to their duties when that need arises. If time permits, I will briefly address the plaintiff's argument raised for the first time in this appeal that there is no subject matter jurisdiction of the trial court to enter the pay order. Briefly as to the facts, I know the court is familiar with the facts, but I must note that the facts as recited in the Court of Appeals opinion are primarily taken from the complaint and are not accurate. The trial court had direct evidence, including medical records and expert affidavits, that Mr. Falls was fully competent when he executed the Fifth Amendment. The Court of Appeals also makes other factual errors, such as saying that the Fifth Amendment, which is the operative trust agreement, makes no mention of Wing or Falls III, but in fact it specifically names them and says it's not providing for them in, quote, this trust. And it says this trust for good reason, because through other trusts and other methods, Mr. Falls gave significant sums of money to his children. He did not give to all equally, but he did give generously. Mr. Dorsey and I have been counsel for Mr. Falls and his trust and estate for almost eight years. Mr. Falls approached us and hired us because his son, Ralph III, had failed to put a second mortgage on a house when he lent him over $200,000 to fund that purchase and ultimately had to sue his son over that. Ralph III, the son, never said that his father was incompetent to write him large checks in 2013, and we won a, large jury, we won a jury verdict in that matter. At the same time, Ralph III and Wing filed these suits in state court asserting their father was incompetent or under undue influence at the same time and for years prior to his death, seeking to invalidate a host of documents he'd executed, but most importantly, his operative trust instrument, which we refer to as the Fifth Amendment, though it is a self-contained and fully operational trust instrument. So the trustee has a duty to defend claims against a trust in North Carolina. As codified in the North Carolina Trust Code 36C811, a trustee has a duty, and it says in the statute, quote, shall take reasonable steps to enforce claims of the trust and defend claims against the trust. That is a core duty of trust law, and it is not the same as the law of wills. Plaintiffs have tried to argue that their lawsuit is not a claim against the trust, but it most certainly is. As confirmed in treatises such as the Restatement of Trusts, Section 76, which states in its commentary, quote, a trustee has a duty to defend the trust and not to stand by as a mere stakeholder when the validity of the trust or trust provision is challenged. Here, plaintiffs seek to invalidate the entire Fifth Amendment, which is the operable trust instrument. Our brief and the beneficiary's brief also cite other treatises, including Bogart on trusts. Plaintiffs' attempts to lead the court away from this black-letter law are unpersuasive. As to this comment in the restatement I just noted, plaintiffs call it, quote, a short package plucked from the reporter's notes. And I do appreciate that wordsmithing, that if the restatement says something efficiently and with clarity, and that is even, quote, widely asserted, it must somehow 
be wrong. That is really the crux of the argument, that all these these statements of black letter law that stated so clearly must be wrong because they state it in a breezy fashion or so you must treat it with a skeptical eye. It's the same thing with the treatise Bogart on Trusts. Uh, they refer to this in their brief as a 34-year-old student horn book. In fact, it's not a student horn book if that matters. It's a practitioner's edition which we located and still exists in the Supreme Court Library. At, at, at some point, it seems to me that you know we can uh, I mean, I take your point about the, the Fifth Amendment rising or falling as an entirety, but at least if I'm understanding your colleagues' argument, they are saying, in effect, we're not complaining about your appointment as a trustee, for example. We're not complaining about the way the document reads. We're just complaining about the fact that essentially we were, you know, beneficiaries under earlier iterations of this document, and we are not now. And therefore, to say that we are challenging the entire document, while perhaps technically true, isn't really a fair, accurate characterization of what we are really trying to do. That seems to be their argument. If that's not their argument, they'll have some time to correct me when I, you know, if I've made an error. But assuming that that's their argument, why should we not accept it? Well, certainly that is their argument, but, but that, that is certainly, that is not true because you can only bring this sort of action in North Carolina to invalidate entire trust agreement. Uh, they bring this action under 36C-6, that's 604. You can only bring that claim if you're seeking to invalidate a trust document. That's a challenge, an action to invalidate all or part of the terms of the trust. That's what those statutes say, that this sort of action is an action to invalidate the trust. And I think that it's also important to note that a trust, Professor Orth goes into this in his amicus, and this is, I think this is key, that a trust is a relationship, not an entity. It's a relationship between the trustee and the beneficiaries. So the tack on that relationship, the trustee and the beneficiaries as named in the operative trust agreement, that is an attack on the trust. So an attack to invalidate the document and change the beneficiaries is a core attack on the validity of the trust. What the, what the plaintiffs rely on. Would you have had, would, would your client have had the discretion to, and, and this is obviously not what you did, but would you have had the discretion to say, well, we've looked at the evidence, we conclude there may be something to this, therefore we're not going to defend it? So the duty of the trustee is to look at the claim and um, if, the claim, if the trustee reasonably believes the claims to be without foundation, if that's the trustee's duty, that they reasonably believe the claims are not valid, then they do have the duty to defend the trust. But, but you, you have to, you would, I gather from your answer, also assert that in the event that you reach the contrary conclusion with respect to the claim, the trust would have the trustee would have the authority not to defend it or to take some other action to acquiesce in the claim. That is correct. If you think that the claim is completely valid um, and that there is a problem that the trust is likely invalid, the trustee can decide not to defend the trust. So, so in essence, what you're arguing here then is that essentially that the trust made a discretionary decision that is committed to the discretion of the trust. Once that decision has been made, the court doesn't have any authority to look behind it and to say you can't pay fees? Well, I don't know if the court has no authority to look at it. The way we dealt with it was because we had a highly litigious group of plaintiffs here was to ask the court for instructions to remove any concern of any doubt and potentially one of the reasons why you can request instructions is to extinguish the concern of some risk of liability if the trustee is going the wrong way when they're making that discretionary decision. You go to the court to confirm that you have the discretion to make, you know, that you can go this forward and can, you know, that you do have to defend this claim against the trust. Because here we do have a claim where, uh, again, gifts were being given to the children. At the same time, they're claiming he's incompetent. So anything that the father did that was to the benefit of his children, oh, that's fine. He was completely competent. Oh, but this document, at the same time the father's suing his son because the son wouldn't put the mortgage on it, the father executed these amendments saying, you're not going to follow my directions as to what to do. I'm going to amend this document. And he had a competency exam at the same time because the son tried to execute a power of attorney. So there was copious evidence all before the trial court to suggest that this claim was, you know, was one that needed to be defended. 
Um, but, but, but really what plaintiffs, I think, rely on just to serve in is, is this California case law. They said the California case law and the Court of Appeals did it. And these cases are really outliers. They're factually distinguishable for one point. The trustee was also a beneficiary in those cases. California has not adopted the Uniform Trust Code, and the free request was at the end of the litigation. But those cases are bad law. They should not be adopted in North Carolina. The Court of Appeals was the first court outside California to rely on these cases since Whittlesey, which is the oldest case they cite. That was, came out in 2003. Because that case, just to serve, and that, that's a case that says, oh, this is just a fight between beneficiaries. It doesn't matter what the documents say. Um, but that's not what the black letter law is. It's the final operative document is the document you defend. So the restatement. And, and, and is there a difference between the language in the California trust statutes and the uh, North Carolina? There is, there is some difference in, in the language, um, and we can point to that language. We talk about that in our brief. But also you can see when you look at those cases that the, plain, that the parties trying to get trust fees in those cases were citing the black letter law. And, in fact, the restatement notes the existence of the Whittlesey case. Um, right after it says in the restatement comments that, there's, that the trustee has a duty to defend the case, it says, but see Whittlesey, acknowledging that Whittlesey is against the, 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 the broad amount of authority. So that, that is how the restatement notes that existence. And I want to note, that, and this is mentioned in the briefing by beneficiaries, but I think this is important. Those California cases in practice don't even apply in reality anymore. Practitioners have got around those cases by adding a clause to trust documents that confirms a duty as a trustee has a duty to defend. The Doolittle case from 2015 notes that trusts in California now add language confirming that the trustee can defend, quote, any contest or other attack of any nature on this trust or any of its provisions. Essentially, through drafting, California has gone back to the common law uniform trust code. In North Carolina, we're not just looking at common law and saying North Carolina has never decided a case on this. Because a lot of this law developed nationally, the North Carolina Trust Code, which was adopted in 2005, is attempting to make sure, to make clear that this is also the law of North Carolina. So that's why we have the statute uh, 811, which makes clear that the trustee has that duty. So it's not just common law, it's also statutory now. And from the commentary in the restatements, it's clear that the North Carolina intended to uh, enshrine the, the common law in statute and that the California case laws are just just not correct law. And so that's a different view. The way California has looked at it is that a trustee doesn't have a duty to defend the trust, and they've gotten around it by saying, well, if you put it in the trust document, then you have the duty. So that's why those cases have not been cited by anybody else. It's not sister authority. They're just two cases out there which are, which are bad law. I will, though I will note that the plaintiff and court of appeals cite at least four other cases to support its holding that the trustee has a duty to remain neutral and these are all cases over how to interpret the terms of an undisputed trust document. They aren't cases trying to invalidate a trust document. So Professor Ort's brief gives an example. He cites the example if you use the term bodily heirs in a trust document. The trustee doesn't get involved in a dispute over who the bodily heirs are if the interpretation of that term is up for dispute. That, that's the cases that they cite in the plaintiff's brief and in the Court of Appeals case. Those aren't cases seeking to invalidate trust terms, just interpret those. The duty to neutrality simply doesn't apply to a claim to invalidate the entire trust. So going back to Justice Irvin's point about the two ways to look at the world, that's really the way we have it now with trusts and wills. They are different ways to handle an estate. The law of wills is different than the law of trusts. And one of the main reasons I think the Court of Appeals erred was by its misuse of 36C1-112 and using it to import statutes applicable to wills in a trust contest. That statute is a rule of construction, not a springboard to apply the substantive law of wills to trust administration. The laws of wills and trust in North Carolina significantly different, differ, and much of North Carolina trust code would be rendered superfluous if that statute superseded it. The court below, however, used this statute to hold that the court was required to freeze the trust assets under 3136. That's a will statute. If this is a will cabinet. That statute clearly does not apply to trust proceedings. That misapplication of law is very problematic and should be reversed. Just briefly, I'll turn to my second main point, which is the follow-on and the import of the court order. The Court of Appeals erred in holding that the trustee breached its duty of neutrality by following the trial court's pay order. The Court of Appeals' opinion seems to forget at times that the trustee, for the expenses that are at issue on this appeal, the trustee didn't pay those expenses to defend this action until it received instructions from the court. 
Uh, plaintiffs, the way this happened procedurally is the plaintiffs moved for a motion to freeze. The defendants directed that the payments be made. The trustee said, court, we welcome your guidance. The plaintiffs then asked in the alternative that the court pay everyone's fees. So the trustee was aware of its duty to defend the claims and agreed it needed the court's guidance for clarity. Simply put, a party cannot be held liable for following a court order, and a trustee cannot be held to have breached the duty of neutrality when acting pursuant to a court order. The duty of neutrality, as I just said, only applies to a fight over an interpretation of terms. More, more importantly, as the amicus brief also points out, the Court of Appeals' opinion creates uncertainty in the law in suggesting a trustee can violate its duties in following a court order and then raising the specter that the trustee could somehow even be liable for doing so. The Court of Appeals' opinion doesn't say the trustee is liable, but it creates a lot of uncertainty. And that's untenable for the proper and efficient administration of trusts. It needs to be reversed. Institutional trustees need to be able to rely on settled trust law and instructions from their court when required to properly and efficiently administer trusts. Before I get too much into Mr. Duncan's time, on the issue of subject matter jurisdiction, which he is also prepared to address, plaintiffs argued to the tr that the trial court didn't have subject matter jurisdiction to enter this order on request for instructions. I think this argument is really quite silly. 36C-2-201 specifically says, quote, a judicial proceeding involving a trust may relate to any matter involving the trust's administration, including a request for instructions or an action to declare rights. There's no question that if the lawsuit, uh, no lawsuit was pending at all, an action would need to be initiated to get court instructions, but that wasn't necessary here because there was an action pending, multiple actions, which had all been consolidated before Judge Wilson pursuant to Rule 2.1. But in conclusion, we, confer, we uh, advocate that the decision of the Court of Appeals is clearly an error. It needs to be reversed on the merits and that the trial court's pay order be affirmed. I will now turn it over to Mr. Duncan. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Alan Duncan, and I represent the defendant appellant Diane Sellers, along with my colleagues Allison Mullins and Hillary Keyes. And also here appear to argue on behalf of defendant appellants, the Cone family, and their counsel, Leslie Packer and Michelle McCory. We've now discuss the obligation uh, in terms of the obligation to defend the trust. The question that I'm going to address is how to defend the trust under the trust code in North Carolina. The trust code requires a trustee to defend against trust contests. Trust code also provides for reimbursement of costs for defense of the trust. In doing so, the trust code makes it clear that attorney's fees and expenses of an action or judicial proceeding are incurred in the administration of the trust. They are not distributions. They are part of the administration. If you'll bear with me, there's a roadmap of statutes that I'll try to cover quickly, but they are pertinent to the decision of the court. Section 36C-8-81624 authorizes a trustee to prosecute or defend an action and includes a comment stating that as the proprietary, excuse, propriety of reimbursement for attorney's fees and other expenses of an action or judicial proceeding, see Section 709 and comment. Section 36C-7-709 states that the trustee is entitled to be reimbursed out of the trust property for expenses properly incurred in the administration of the trust as provided in GS 32-58. The comment to Section 36C-7-709 notes that a trustee has the authority to expend trust funds as necessary in the administration of the trust, including expenses incurred in the hiring of agents such as attorneys, accountants, other professionals. Section 36C-8-81627 authorizes a trustee to utilize as advisors or assistants in the performance of administrative duties or delegated administrative duties in the manner set, set out in GS 36C-8-807 to persons, firms, including attorneys at law or other professionals. Importantly, comment to section 36C-8-81627 says that paragraph 27 was added to bring forward the substance of provisions of GS 32-27 subsection 24. 
which also authorizes the trustee to compensate attorneys to assist in the administration of the trust. Finally, mercifully, Section 32-58 states that the trustee shall be entitled to reimbursement out of the assets of the trust for expenses properly incurred or advanced in the administration of the trust and shall be empowered to pay the expenses from the assets of the trust without prior approval of the clerk of superior court. The trust code allows the trustee to delegate this duty to defend the trust, as it did here, to the attorneys for the beneficiaries. Section 36C-8-807A, a trustee may delegate duties and powers that a prudent trustee of comparable skills could properly delegate under the circumstances. Section 32-2723 authorizes the trustee to sue or defend or otherwise deal with claims against the estate or trust. And finally, for this point, Section 32-2724 gives a trustee the ability to compensate out of income or principal or both, and in such proportion as the fiduciary shall deem advisable, persons deemed by the fiduciary needful to advise or assist in the proper settlement of the estate or administration of any trust, including but not limited to attorneys at law. Here, despite protestations to the contrary, plaintiffs are in fact attacking the validity of the trust, as has been described, and have made omissions to that fact. It's in their brief. Because Wing and Trust and Falls III also raise issues about the impartiality of the trustee, the trustee sought to remain neutral while still meeting its obligation to defend the trust. To remain neutral, the trustee made the decision in its business judgment for counsel for the beneficiaries to defend the trust. As Professor Orth notes in his amicus brief, a trust is the relationship between the trustee who holds legal title and the beneficiaries who hold equitable title. As the trustee owes a duty of loyalty and prudence based on the relationship to the beneficiaries. To satisfy this duty, the trustees asked the trial court for instructions related to paying the beneficiary's cost to defend the trust, which is otherwise authorized by the statutes as discussed. The trial court's instructions permitted such payments, which are supported by North Carolina trust laws, as set out in pages 6 and 7 of Professor Orr's amicus brief. Um, if, if I may, I, I, I would like to ask you about an argument you make in your brief. I understand the importance of of the, the dealing with the substance that has been laid out, but you also make an argument that this appeal was interlocutory, and and and, and if we were to agree that that there was not a substantial right at issue here, and that this appeal is interlocutory, would we even reach the merits of any of these substantive issues that that we? hearing about? I would assume if that was the conclusion reached that the merits that were reached at the Court of Appeals also would no longer carry precedent. But I will say this. It's our position, we believe, that there's reasons, and we set those reasons out in the brief, as Your Honor knows. Uh, it's our position that we, in fact, uh, it is an interlocutory appeal because there's no payment that's being required. There's a payment that is being made out of the trust, but there's not a payment being required of the uh, plaintiffs who made the appeal. The other reason given by the Court of Appeals was inconsistent jury verdict potential, and that that's not accurate in the sense that they're not even the same claims on the point that they allege that on. Our, our position on that is that uh, in, this, in this context, that whether or not the appeal is interlocutory is decided on the law would tend to show on some form of an ad hoc basis. The court deals with this a lot more than I do, but that's the reading that I get from some of the opinions. In this case, affirmatively, there's important substantive law with respect to the law of trust. And so our focus is really arguing the substantive law and the law of trust because we think that's important, and the court ultimately will, will decide its, on its own uh, basis of analysis on a case-to-case -case basis as to whether it's an interlocutory appeal. But at this point, we've, we've urged a finding to the extent that this case has caused disruption. For those who practice trust law, it would be helpful to get guidance from the court. And so that's why we argue and focus on that point. Well, just to, just to make sure I'm following you, Mr. Duckett, are you saying that this is one of these cases where it's sufficiently important to the juris jurisprudence in this particular area that a substantive decision would be helpful? I am saying that. 
regard regardless of the law of interlocutory appeals? Well, I'm not trying to intrude on the law of interlocutory appeals. <laughs> I leave that to the sound judgment of the court. <laughs> if I could figure that one out, I would try to provide some assistance, but I think that's a struggle for everyone. I have a question uh, for you, if we may return to the pay order um, uh, conversation. Um, my reading of the briefs is that um, both parties, or all the parties, see this as abuse of discretion. But since it's a future pay as opposed to a past past pay, um, is it not more a question of law and a de novo review? Could you address that yes, for us, please? I'll be glad to. I think that's, again, I did not spend time arguing on that point today because I think it's a close question, frankly. We've argued that it's an abuse of discretion. I think that's a reasonable argument. I think it's the right argument or we not, we not have made it. I do think, however, it's a close question as to whether it's de novo. And our position is, regardless of what the standard is, the outcome on the substance should be the same or will be the same. And so that's... That's, that's why we have not put as much emphasis in this argument on that point. Thank you. Would, would, it, would it make sense to say that the question of whether the uh, trustee had the authority to act as a matter of statutory construction would be a question of law subject to de novo review, but the decision as to whether, uh, as I discussed with your colleague, that the trust actually chose to make a decision to make the payments that are at issue here would be subject to abuse of discretion review if we got to it? I think that would be a fair analysis, yes. And in our positions, the trial court considered all the evidence that was before it, and there was evidence before it, substantial evidence, which was reviewed in part by my colleague, uh, that would indicate that, in fact, the, the trial court made the right decision based on all the evidence that was before it. Counsel, you're well within your rebuttal Thank time. You. Thank you. I'm going to make one last quick point, and I'll sit down. Um, the Court of Appeals improperly granted the motion to freeze. It was not even appealed, and so I do think it's important to make that point for this court, that that, that motion to freeze not having been appealed. Finally, Diane Sellers' power of attorney does not create a presumption of undue influence. It was never recorded. It was never used uh, or exercised. So for those reasons, under the law and in the cases we cited, that does not create a conflict with respect to her status in this case. Thank you. Thank you. Hear from the FLE. Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Liz Arias. This is my co-counsel Jesse Schaefer and Johnny Loper. And to, today we are representing not only our client Cooper Wing, but making the argument on behalf of Ralph Falls III, who is represented by Mr. Monroe. I'm going to take roughly half of our time today, and Mr. Schaefer is going to take the other half. Mr. Schaefer is going to address the issues of interlocutory appeal, standard of review, subject matter jurisdiction, and appellate jurisdiction. I'm going to stick to the substantive um, law with respect to the trust code. And as an initial matter, uh, I do believe that this is an issue uh, with, for, with respect to trust and estates law that is novel and an issue of first impression. As of today, I think maybe almost 40 states have adopted the Uniform Trust Code, which means the decision of this court, and there have been no decisions on the interplay between Sections 811 and Section 604 of the Trust Code in any of those states. So, so we get to go where no court has gone before? You get to go where no court has gone before. And one of the issues um, for me today is the fact that the subsequent beneficiaries and trustee just fundamentally misunderstand how the Uniform Trust Code is structured and how it is intended to operate. I think it's important to understand that the Uniform Trust Code, which is set out in a series of articles, has an entire article, Article 6, which is dedicated just to revocable trusts. The rest of the trust code applies both to revocable trusts and irrevocable trusts. But because revocable trusts are so commonly used now for estate planning purposes in lieu of what used to always be just a will, the, the drafters of the Uniform Trust Code believed that it was important to set out specific rules that would apply to how revocable trusts are administered when the settlor dies. And setting out a decision here today that treats revocable trust contests differently from a will contest upon the death of the set law means we will have totally different rules that apply depending on which set of estate planning documents the set law used. There is a long and well-established body of law on will caveats. All lawyers get a basic education in law school about a will caveat and the fact that the purpose of a will caveat is to challenge whether or not 
the last will and testament of the decedent was the valid act of that decedent or whether it was the product of undue influence or lack of capacity. Nowadays, because the costs of probate are so high, most trust and estate practitioners, instead of drafting a will for their client, draft a will and a revocable trust. The purpose is still the same, to dispose of the decedent's assets upon his death. And the lead-in to Article 6 of the Trust Code makes that clear by stating that a revocable trust is the functional equivalent of a will. And 604 states specifically that a challenge to a revocable trust can be brought at the death of the settlor. And this would be on the same basis that you'd bring the will caveat. And in fact, in this case, our decedent had a will and a revocable trust. And we filed a caveat to the will and a challenge to the revocable trust. And what 604 attempts to do is not say anything at all about a duty to defend, but instead dial back what used to be strict liability under common law, trust law, which said that if a trustee makes a distribution to a person who in, turns out not to have been a beneficiary, it doesn't matter. Strict liability, they're liable. And with the drafts of the and, and I, I, I apologize for interrupting you, but I've discovered if I don't make sure I'm following people along, I may not understand what, what's being said. Your colleagues have argued that what we have here is not a distribution, and therefore rules governing distribution don't apply, or at least that seems to be their argument. If I've misstated it, they've got a little bit of time left to correct me. Uh, what's your res assuming that I've correctly stated their argument, what's your response to that? Yes, that's a, a, a good question. So let me jump over to that. So they're attempting to say two things, that a duty to defend automatically applies to a trust contest and that if a duty to defend is triggered, that somehow gives them the ability not only to pay their own attorneys, the trustees' attorneys, but to give money to the beneficiaries to pay their attorneys. Well, and this may be a quibble, but I, again, if we keep our terms defined correctly, it's easier to get to the right decision. Their argument, as I understand it, seems to be that they have delegated the ability to defend the trust to counsel for certain of the beneficiaries. Uh, and so their argument, in effect, is that instead of defending it directly, they have chosen to uh, defend it in the manner that they've described. Assuming that that's their argument, why is that invalid in your view? Yes, sir, that is their argument, but that is impermissible under the trust code. A trustee cannot delegate to a putative beneficiary the duties and responsibilities of the trustee. And the delegation statute in the trust code makes clear that the only function that functions that can be delegated are ones that are not supposed to be um, the responsibility of the trustee. So the trustee I'm, can I'm hire so, I'm sorry, say that, say that again. So the trust code, the duty to delegate does not allow a trustee to delegate to a putative beneficiary the ability to take over the case. So the the issue here is whether or not the Mr. Falls had capacity or undue influence. Right. The trustee, if the trustee, not conceding that the trustee has a duty to defend, but if the trustee did, that's on the trustee to hire counsel and to represent the office of trustee. But to then, and the trustee's done that, by the way. The trustee has counsel and the trust has paid trustee's counsel. But to then say, and in addition to that, we can choose one of the sets of beneficiaries and give them money to pay their own lawyers is an impermissible delegation. That is not a trust expense. That is black letter trust distribution. Let it's me jump in and ask a quick follow-up. Is that prohibition that you're arguing in the statute? So if you look at the comments to the delegation statute, it, will, it says that the types of matters that are, can be delegated are those that are not supposed to be um, assumed or are the responsibility of the trustee. So does that, are you saying that it's by implication in the comment, the prohibition? There is not a, there is not a sentence that says a trustee cannot delegate to putative beneficiaries the, the defense. Okay. But it is, it is the, it's the intent of how delegation works is that a trustee always has a fiduciary duty. You continue to have a fiduciary duty even over matters which you have delegated. And to delegate responsibility to one set of beneficiaries, particularly in light of 604, is an impermissible delegation. And this is where I think they're not bridging the gap between 604 and 811 correctly. 804 was intended to 
dial back the strict liability and say, trustee, as long as there's no trust contest pending, you may make distributions. But the moment you know that a trust contest is pending, if you give money to one set of individuals and they turn out not to be beneficiaries, you're liable, strictly liable. Their argument would turn that on its head and say, no, 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 actually, we're required. If we determine that there's a delegation duty, we have to pay them. So ignore 604's imposition of liability. Well, uh, I'm not sure I heard an answer to Justice Urban's question about whether the monies paid were a distribution, because the argument was that they were not a distribution, they were part of the administration. They are absolutely a distribution. So, And the, what, de- what determines that? So the nature of the expense. So the best way I can explain this is if a trust owns a house and there is a roofing issue, the trust owns the property, it's a trust expense to repair it. If I own a house and I ask a trustee for money to fix my roof, that is a distribution being made to me to fix my own asset. So a trust expense is expense incurred as a result of assets owned by the trustee or duties imposed on the trustee. Giving money to a beneficiary, whether it's to pay their accountant, their lawyer, to fix their roof, to pay for their groceries, is a distribution. Well, hi, hi. If it's to defend the trust itself, how does that work? Because the defense of the trust is the response, if there is a duty to defend, is the obligation of the trustee. The, if, if the subsequent beneficiaries lose this lawsuit, they will never have been beneficiaries. Yet they will have had the entire cost of their litigation funded for them out of the trust. And to your issue about substantial right, it's their, it's their um, position that even if we do win, all of that money is not recoverable, that they were entitled to do that. But the, du- the, the most fundamental problem is there is no duty to defend, and that's why this but, but decision before you, is so Before you move on from Justice Hudson's question, and, and I do want to get to where you're, you're going, uh, let's say hypothetically that the trust owns your house and that the beneficiary lives in the house, and the beneficiary comes to the trustee and says, the roof leaks, we need a new roof. And the trustee then authorizes payment to fix the roof or to replace the roof. Is that a distribution or is that a, uh, a, a payment of an expense from the trust or it, of the trust? It is a trust expense. The trust owns the property. Okay. And why is it why is it a trust expense even with the beneficiary living there? I'm going to say hypothetically rent free just to. Add, same, add some term in there. Same way in landlord-tenant. You have a tenant there, and unless your lease negotiated different terms, it's the landlord's responsibility to repair. The trust owns the house. It's the trust expense. Now, if the beneficiary has a cable bill, that's the beneficiary's choice for utilities, and that if you give them money to pay their cable bill, then that's the distribution to them. And, on the, the, and the, key, the key problem with the subsequent beneficiaries and trustees' argument is that they are trying to graft a duty to defend on what is a trust contest and a dispute between different sets of putative beneficiaries. Let me ask just kind of a fundamental question. Uh, It seems that Court of Appeals and it seems that that your position would be that the trust exists and that the Fifth Amendment is simply that, an amendment, but that the trust was created with this initial documentation. But it seems to me that um, the defendant's position is that the Fifth Amendment, although saying Fifth Amendment, is in fact a restatement or a creation of a new trust. Uh, Am I at least correct in that basic understanding? That is what they argue. But at the Court of Appeals, they, they both counsel for trustee and subsequent beneficiaries confirmed that there was only one trust. And the Fifth Amendment is an amendment and restatement. That trust was created in 2011, and that document, the terms of the trust, have been amended and restated multiple times. It seems like that Professor Orth does talk about that a trust is a relationship as opposed to an entity, and that the Fifth Amendment would stand alone as the creation of a trust, albeit different than the original trust, uh, and that given the 
uh, revocable nature uh, that it can be modified up until death. Is that, one, an accurate statement of what Professor Orth said, and two, why do you disagree with that? So I, Professor Orth does say it's a relationship, but that does not mean it's an entity. Trusts can obtain taxpayer identification numbers. They can own assets. They file tax returns. Real property can be deeded into them. The, the, the fundamental law on the relationship simply is that the trustees own the property but must administer them for the benefit of the beneficiaries, not for themselves. But a trust most certainly is legally created the moment the trust instrument is signed. And that is the same uh, issue that the California Court noted in the arguments that were being made to it, is that counsel did not understand the fundamental distinction between a trust and a trust instrument. It's like when an LLC is created, it has an operating agreement. The operating agreement can be amended and restated. It is not a new LLC. It's just different terms. We have one trust here. The terms, initially, we were the beneficiaries of. At the end, when Mr. Falls died, they were the beneficiaries. Just like when terms in a will are different, what we have here is a trust, the terms of which were replaced, amended, and restated, and the argument is over which set of terms govern distribution of the assets in the trust. Well, to, but to, to follow up, if, if, it, if the trust is amended to change the beneficiaries and the trust is a relationship, doesn't that fundamentally change the nature of the relationship if it's with different people? No, Your Honor, because the trust was created, it sprang into existence August of 2011. And that trust at that point in time was eligible to own property, does own property, was eligible to have a tax identification number. Just like if you had an, op, uh, uh, an LLC where all the members changed out over time, it's still the same LLC. So the, the trust existed the terms are being updated. Beneficiaries are changing each time there's a new document done. And at the end of the day, this is not like an irrevocable trust that was set up years ago that's been in existence. This is a document that did not become irrevocable until death. And if we are successful, if there was lack of capacity and undue influence, it was an invalid document. Do you agree with Professor Orth that the trust is a relationship? I agree with the the, you notice that, that, that Professor Orr cited no case law, no statute in his brief. It's just, just his statement as to what he thinks. It is true that you are taught in, in wills and trusts in first-year law school that a trust is a relationship only because the point is trying to be made that the trustees are fiduciaries and therefore they don't own the assets unilaterally but must administer them for the benefit of the beneficiaries. It is not just a relationship. It is a legal entity. Otherwise, how could it apply for a tax identification number? How could it own property? It, it is simply stating that if I own title as trustee of a trust, I don't own it and can do whatever I want with it. I own it and must administer that property for the benefit of the beneficiaries. And it is a relationship in that sense. Okay. Is it, again, it's helpful to have you talk about the, the structure of the system a little bit. Is it fair to say, as your colleagues have said, that the Fifth Amendment to the trust is a complete instrument, i.e., everything that controls the operation of this trust, identifies the beneficiaries, the whole thing, is contained within the Fifth Amendment? It was a complete amendment restatement. Okay. And it, uh, let's assume, hypothetically, that your substantive claim, if and when we ever get to it, is uh, heard and decided on the merits and you establish that your claim is uh, valid, what's left? Do you mean what's left? I mean, is there anything left of the Fifth Amendment? No. That so, document so, so the entire Fifth Amendment, every provision in it goes away. Right. So, so that this, again, so I, if I'm understanding correctly, this, the entire self-contained structure created by the Fifth Amendment would be determined to be void. Correct, Your Honor. Okay. Okay. Just like if you had subsequent wills. When one falls, you go to the next one in a will caveat. Yeah. But, but let me and, add— And you're correct. I've done caveats before. This is not, not, not my area of expertise particularly, so it's helpful to have the, the background. Well, and let me make one more point and then give Mr. Schaefer his time. Can, can I just—sorry, very quickly. So 
in, in your mind, there is no difference between a will and a trust. There is absolutely a difference. My point is that a revocable trust contest following the death of the settlor and a will caveat should proceed similarly. And the law is the same, the substantive law. The, the, Substantive law as to whether or not that document is, is invalid, undue influence, lack of capacity, is the same standard, the same test. And you would not want to have to try a will caveat in a revocable trust contest differently or subject to different rules because it's the same pot of assets. Whether the decedent left a will or he left a will in a revocable trust, the issues are the same. And, and that leads to the final point I wanted to make, which is the trustees and subsequent beneficiaries and Professor Orth concede that there is no duty to defend if the issue is contained in the same document. So if the issue is, you know, how do you interpret bodily errors or how do you interpret this provision, they have no duty to defend. So suppose the Fifth Amendment said, I leave the entire state to John, and then paragraph two said, I leave the entire state to Sue. It is their position that there is no duty to defend. Why would it be any different if Document one says, I leave everything to, to Joe, and document two says, I leave everything to Sue. It's the same thing. We don't know who gets the pot of assets. There's only one pot of assets, and the question is, who should be entitled to receive them? And There's no damage being done to the trust rate or the trust property by trying to figure out who is the right set of beneficiaries. And, Counselor, while you're on the duty, and I know you're uh, ready to yield your time, but um, let's assume there is no duty, but how do you get around the power that is held that's uh, in 36C8815, there's a power of a trustee to be able to defend. Uh, uh, the language of that statute says the trustee may prosecute or defend an action, claim, or judicial proceeding in any jurisdiction. Uh, uh, in assuming there isn't a duty, but is there not a discretionary power here? Can you help me understand how that works? Yeah, the duty to defend, which is in 811, says that the trustee shall take reasonable steps to defend claims against the trust which, if you look in our brief, we, cite, we, we go through both the meaning of that statute in North Carolina case law, which is claims against the trust or claims that would affect the assets of the trust. Somebody's suing for money damages because they got hurt in the house that the trust owns. The word claim never appears in 604. All 604 says is that if there is a trust contest pending, if a trustee makes distribution to the wrong set of beneficiaries, they're liable. And they don't like that rule because they've made distributions to one set of beneficiaries. So they're trying to impose a duty to defend as a justification for why they made distributions to one set of beneficiaries. But my point is, is that a trust contest where all we need to know is who are the right beneficiaries does not affect the claims, does not affect the assets of the trust. So it's not a claim against the trust. But doesn't 816.24 give this discretion to the trustee? 24, if you look at it, says trust property. Um, the actual language of 24, of subsection 24, says prosecute or defend an action, claim, or judicial proceeding in any jurisdiction to protect trust property. Trust property is not at issue here. But it does say, and the, and the trustee in the performance of trustees' duties, would it not be uh, uh, at least a, uh, uh, an interpretation that when they decide to uh, defend, that would be one of their du duties? But the, the problem with their argument is that until this litigation is over, we don't know who the beneficiaries are, so they don't know to whom they owe a duty. If we are successful, the Fifth Amendment will be invalid. We will have always been the beneficiaries. They will never have been the beneficiaries. So any distributions that they made to subsequent beneficiaries would have been improper, and they would be liable under 604. Thank you. Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Jesse Schaefer. I, I hope to address three issues today, which is the standard of review, subject matter jurisdiction, and appellate jurisdiction. So starting with the standard of review, as you can see in our briefs, we contend that the de novo standard of review applies both because there is an issue of subject matter jurisdiction, which is always considered de novo, and because the, uh, the pay order was in effect, in our view, a declaratory judgment uh, that rests on, on erroneous conclusions of law. Their position is that abuse of discretion standard applies, and, and getting to that point, they, they cite to a number of cases involving the award of costs. However, below in their briefs, they, they 
concede that this is not a statutory award of costs under 6-21, which is the only method in North Carolina of awarding attorney's fees and costs in these types of cases. Uh, in response to us pointing that out, they, so, they so, so is it, and this was something I noticed in your brief, because you all cited a number of provisions from Chapter 6. Yes, Your Honor. Is it your contention that no payment can be made here that's not authorized under Chapter 6? It is our position that no payment of attorney's fees can be made here unless it's in accordance with Chapter 6. And, and the reason why is, is because... Because I, I had understood, I mean, again, apologize for interrupting you, but I want to make sure I'm understanding you. My understanding of Chapter 6 is that those provisions govern when a court can award cost. That, that is, is your Is your contention that a decision by a trustee to pay cost rightly or wrongly is uh, an award of costs uh, subject to Chapter 6 by a trial court? No, Your Honor, but okay. the, the issue before this court is the pay order, which is the order from the court. So, so, a, so a trial court cannot allow a trustee to pay fees except in accordance with Chapter 6? The trustee is free to pay costs however they want. I want to be very clear on that. 6-604 says that if they're wrong and they pay those fees to someone who is not a beneficiary, then they're liable. And that's the key issue here, is the pay order purports to, at least according to the trustee, purports to relieve the trustee of potential liability for making payments of fees to these beneficiaries, for the benefit of the beneficiaries. That is the issue. That and is and, and I'm, I'm, I guess my, the, where I'm having trouble, and I may just not be understanding you correctly, is I mean, I get what you just said in terms of the argument between the parties. I'm not sure I understand what Chapter 6 has got to do with this. Chapter 6 governs a trial court's power to direct a party, to direct a trustee in this case, to pay fees. A trial court to, to, award, to award attorney's fees as cost in litigation. That is correct, Your Honor. Is that, and your contention is what we have here is that? The, our contention is that this is a declaratory judgment. And, and so, no, that is not our contention. Their contention, when they're talking about standard review, is that this is an award of costs. And they, they say that by referencing all these cases that say that an abuse of discretion standard applies here, which it does not. It, the only way to award costs in North Carolina is pursuant to 6-21. That, that's the only way. Uh, they refer to a number of what they consider to be equitable interests of justice uh, standards where a court can award attorney's fees during the pendency of litigation, in their view, that is incorrect. Section 10-1004 of, of, of our trust code specifically, uh, the, the General Assembly specifically rejected that interest of justice standard for awarding fees and said that you have to award fees in accordance with 6-21. If the court's going to do it, it has to be in accordance with 6-21. If the trustee's going to do it, they can do it, but they can only do it if at the end of the case, if they're wrong, they're held liable. That's, that's what 6-604 says. And, and that's, that is the key dispute in this case. Uh, it's, it's, so it's very important. So the, the issue of, of de novo review is, 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 in our view, very clear that this is a de novo review of the pay order. And uh, therefore, the court may, may consider everything anew. Moving on to the subject matter jurisdiction here. The trust code provides in section 2201 that a trial court may intervene in the administration of a trust only to the extent its jurisdiction is invoked by a party. How does a party invoke the jurisdiction of a trial court? This court has repeatedly held that, quote, a court's subject matter jurisdiction is invoked over a particular case by the pleading. That's the Bozeman case from 2010. No pleading was ever filed in this case asking for these instructions. It was done by motion, and the instructions request was one sentence in a, in a response brief before the trial court. The statute specifically required, the trust code specifically requires that if an action, a judicial proceeding seeking instructions, such as this one, it is to be commenced, it must be commenced as is prescribed for civil actions. That's 36C2205, which, as, as we all know, means that a pleading must be filed. That did not happen here. 
Therefore, no one has invoked the trial court's authority to issue instructions in this case, and the pay order is void as a matter of law. The, the concept in Bozeman that of a of subject matter jurisdiction over a particular case is very important because the general idea that the court has authority to issue instructions is undisputed in this case. Undisputed. The issue is whether in this particular case the court's uh, jurisdiction had been invoked is disputed, and we contend that it was not invoked because there is no pleading. Uh, I, I, would, I, I believe that there are several cases from this court that are very instructive. In Bozeman, uh, the, the court held that a petition seeking authority that, or seeking a, a remedy that was not authorized by the statute did not invoke jurisdiction, and therefore that order was void. In the matter of TRP, um, the, the court held that a failure to verify a petition meant that there was no invocation of jurisdiction and therefore the order was void. So the, the same concept applies here. There is no petition. There was no request for uh, instructions here, never been made, and so the court exceeded its, tri its subject matter jurisdiction when it issued instructions uh, without a petition. Uh, they make a number of arguments as to why we can no longer raise that issue. They, they say that we've waived it. The simple answer is we haven't waived it because subject matter jurisdiction is not waivable. We have followed the proper procedure because Rule 12 H3 says that this issue can be raised by suggestion or otherwise. We've done that. But it is before the court, and the court must satisfy itself that there is subject matter jurisdiction in this case. They, they cite to KJL to say that procedural issues may not be may not be raised and that they're, they're, they're waived. Procedural issues regarding subject matter jurisdiction may be waived. They misunderstand KJL because KJL involved uh, uh, personal jurisdiction, de defects and summons, and the court specifically said procedural issues related to personal jurisdiction are waivable, and that's uncontested. Procedural issues related to subject matter jurisdiction are not waivable, and therefore uh, this, this issue is before the court. Finally, with regard to appellate jurisdiction in my last 30 seconds, the, the key point here is the pay order, as they understand it, prevents us from recovering one of our claims. One of our claims is that we should be able to recover at the end of the case, should we be successful, all of the money that they paid to the wrong beneficiaries. They went and got the pay order so that they don't have to comply with the rule 6604, section 6604, which says that they have to do that. Because they're saying that we can't ever recover that money, we can't ever recover that money until the end of the case, when we get to the end of the case, and Your Honor, if I may have just two seconds to finish, um, they, they are saying that we can't ever recover that money, even if we win at trial, even if we get this, this order reversed at the end of the day. And therefore, it is a, a right that would be immediately lost and it is something that the Court of Appeals uh, properly considered. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Counsel. We hear rebuttal. Thank you. So this is really not a case where no one has gone before. It may be technically under the trust code, but it's just been a case where no one's had to go there for a long time because it's the treatises have been in place for decades, and Professor Orth's brief is so straightforward. He does cite some authority. He cites a, a restatement and a treatise. Um, he's very straightforward on the law. So people have gone here before, and I think that these issues are settled, and that's why there's just not a lot of litigation over this. Sometimes some areas of law are so settled that the dart of authority doesn't mean that, oh, this is an unsettled issue. It's that everyone thinks it's settled, and it's in horn books, and then suddenly says, ah, the lack of authority means it must be wrong. We need to t totally throw everything up in the air. And that's the problem that the plaintiffs are inviting here. This case is not about whether a trust can have a tax ID or whether a cable bill um, is an expense or, or, a, or, a, uh, or expense or a distribution. It's form over substance. A trust is a relationship, and this is an attack on the trust, the relationship as stated in the Fifth Amendment. Um, a claim seeking to invalidate a trust is a core attack on the trust. That is the core of, if you're attacking the whole trust and try to invalidate that, that is, there's no way to twist 811 of the Uniform Code to say that's not an attack on the trust. As to delegation and how we decided to delegate to Beneficiaries Council, 
Here, there was a demand by plaintiffs again and again that the trustee needed to be neutral. We had all these competing motions, so we said to the court, here's how we can uh, do our duty to defend the trust. Beneficiaries' counsel will do the laboring or of defending the trust, and we're not going to duplicate all their work. We're going to still be uh, attorney for the trustee, and that's how we're going to uh, fulfill our duty to defend the trust. So that's, that is what we did. Um, and it certainly is an expense, not a distribution. To call one or the other is just form over substance. Uh, expenses incurred for claims against the trust clearly are an expense, no matter what someone else may call it in the document. Uh, Ms. Arias also talked about why should this claim be different where if they, if, than a case where you're interpreting terms within one trust document. Well, they are completely different because a trust document is the expre expression of the trustee's intent, the, the trustor's tent, intent, and it's a different set of terms in the prior documents. The Fifth Amendment is a complete document. And if we were to adopt the plaintiff's law, the plaintiff's uh, interpretation of what you should do here, you would have the same issue in California. What would happen is if it was the argument that you can't, you know, uh, uh, you can't defend amendments, what would happen is trustee practitioners would just start when they created a trust, they'd say, this is not an amendment of the prior trust. This is a whole new trust. And then all that law would just be out the door because they're relying on the, the argument that they're just an amendment is something you have to defend. And an amendment that's restated is an operative document that does need to be defended. Thank you, the court, for your time. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to everyone.